How would you live differently if you knew the future? I'm sure we've all thought about this, right? If you knew that there was inevitable course that you were on, that your actions were going to lead to some outcome, how would you live differently? If you could see the future, what would you do now? Well, we're often deeply frustrated with our lives, that, that things aren't going the way we want them to go. We see people that they're prospering right now. They have everything going for them and yet they're living the wrong kind of life. And we look at our own lives and we think, why don't I have these certain external benefits in my life? And that's, that's what this, uh, this, this psalm is addressing. It's addressing really what the future holds and what we see now. And it's going to help us get a bigger perspective. So Psalm 37 is all about perspective to see that uh, there's a final end to our lifestyle, whether we're wicked or whether we're righteous, and there's a, a final end for those around us. And this psalm gives us clear instructions about how we should approach life in light of that inevitable end that we're all facing. So Psalm 37 is a treasure if you're in that state right now. And even if you're in a good state of mind, man, Psalm 37 is just a fantastic psalm in so many ways. So Psalm 37 is one of these acrostic psalms. We've seen a few of them so far in the first book of the Psalter. So the structure is based upon the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So each each um, section has a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet that starts that section or those lines of that section. And then it goes to the next letter and so on through the entire alphabet. So um, this is a very long psalm because every, every letter has about four lines for it. So it's going to be hard for us to go through every single verse of the psalm because it is a lot. So instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take this psalm thematically. So I'm going to look at different themes and show how we're commanded to respond to the frustration, disappointment, even envy that we have for those who are wicked. So there's a lot of really practical applications here. The first thing we see is that we need to see the big picture. So that's the first command, the first big idea that we see is see the big picture. As humans, we have this natural tendency to only see what's right in front of us or the limited viewpoint or bias that we have. And we have to broaden our perspective. We have to actually see in the terms of not the next few moments or not just our circumstances, but of the entirety of creation and the entirety of time and eternity. So the only person who can do that for us is God himself. God is the one who can give us that eternal perspective. So David, the psalmist, helps to give us that big picture. Look at verses one and two. He says, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. So he says, fret not yourself. So this is the, the issue. This is someone who's upset because of life's circumstances. They're frustrated. They're disappointed. And when he says, fret not yourself, it's literally in Hebrew, it's saying, don't get heated. Don't get heated. Don't get worked up because of the way the world is working right now. Because certain people prosper and certain people who are righteous are suffering or have less. It's easy to fall into envying evil, especially in a world that's constantly praising evil. It's easy to think that those who are, who are evil or even your old lifestyle would be more satisfying than following God. 
Or if you've never had that kind of sinful lifestyle, it's easy to believe that you would have been happier if you had engaged in all of these sins. And so we can find ourselves in our dark moments, right, fantasizing or thinking about what life would be like if we were living in sin. And so this is helpful for us. So he says, fret not yourself. Don't get heated. Don't get worked up. This, this phrase, fret not yourself, is repeated again and again in the psalm. So I see it in verse 7, verse 8. It's, it's other places as well, but that's a, that's a theme here. Don't get worked up. Don't get heated over the prosperity of the wicked. So the answer is in verse 2. He's, he says, see the big picture. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. So this, this picture is used a few times in this psalm. And what he's saying is grass and herbs are really transient plants. So they'll sprout up, they'll look very lush and full of life, but they can wither just as quickly. And they can, they can become brown, they can become dead just as quickly. Their time is temporary. And the wicked are the same way. Their time on this earth is that they sprout up, they look very prosperous, they look very stable, and then they are swept away. They become nothing. They wither. And if you're wicked, everything that you have is in this life. Everything you have is in this life. And so this theme resounds throughout the psalm. Look at verses 10 and 11. See the same theme of the big picture here. It says, In just a little while the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. So just a little while, just a little while, and the wicked will be no more. They'll be gone. It's just a small amount of time in this current condition. And it's easy to think that our current condition is a permanent state, but it's not. Life changes so quickly. The person who is wealthy today may have nothing to tomorrow. The person who is popular today or even famous today could be completely forgotten tomorrow. Life is constantly changing. But there's a contrast in this verse, right? The meek shall inherit the land. They shall have abundant shalom. So those who are righteous or meek or humble, they are those who will have an abundance of wholeness, of fulfillment, of exactly what they're looking for. The righteous will receive what the wicked desire. It reminds me of a quote from Randy Alcorn, and I had to look this up to find it because I think it just speaks so perfectly to how we view our treasures and how the wicked, their time is fleeting, and for the righteous, their joy is ever increasing. This is what Randy Alcorn says. He's talking about specifically money, but it's it's really true of, of everything. He says, he who lays up treasures on earth spends his life backing away from his treasures. To him, death is loss. He lays up treasures in heaven, or sorry, he who lays up treasures in heaven looks forward to eternity. He's moving daily towards his treasures. To him, death is gain. He who spends his life moving toward his treasures has reason to rejoice. Are you despairing or rejoicing? So you're either daily moving farther away from what's valuable to you or closer to what's valuable for you. So which is it for you? If your value is in this life, it's in sin or it's in temporary things, it's in wealth, then you're day by day, you're losing your grip on what you value the most. But if your treasure is in heaven, if it's with God, if it's your security in him and it's the hope that you have of life with him and you're you're doing good deeds on this earth to prepare yourself for the next life, then you're every day moving toward your wealth. You're getting wealthier in a sense every single day. 
And the psalm actually concludes in the same way that it begins. It, be, it concludes by focusing on that big picture. Look at the end of the psalm, verse 37. Mark the blameless and behold the upright, for there is a future for a man of peace. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. So see this focus on that the wicked will be destroyed. They'll be cut off. They will exist no more. And yet the righteous will be saved. They'll be established. They'll be blessed. They'll be given peace. They'll be given a future. So do you see life in terms of that big picture? Or are you frustrated and disappointed right now because you're only seeing things in terms of the present moment? It's worth, worth asking if you're frustrated, if you're discouraged, are you simply looking at things as they are right now? One of the greatest antidotes to frustrations is to see how things will work out in the long term. It gives us patience and it gives us confidence. But there's more in the psalm that can help us to face our disappointments. The next thing we see is that we should wait on God. We should wait on God. Look at verse 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil, for the evildoers shall be cut off, and those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. So here it's be still, wait patiently on the Lord. So much of our life, we, we want to focus on action. What can we do? What can we accomplish? But much of our life, we have to simply wait. We have to be patient. We have to see what God will do in the right time. And here at the end, he says that the evildoers will be cut off and those who wait for God will inherit the land. So there's this, this phrase cut off is used quite a few times in this psalm. And so if you're reading through it, underline those times. Cut off, that, that's, that's the end of the wicked is that they will be cut off with no future, no hope. They'll lose everything that they've built by their wickedness. But the contrast with that word cut off is in almost every verse where it's used is that the, the righteous will inherit the land. They'll inherit the land. So cut off on one end, inheriting the land on the other. These are the two different ends for humanity. And so the future, if you believe in, G in Jesus, if you're a righteous person who's seeking to live for God, is that you will inherit the land, that God will give to the righteous what the wicked covet, that he will establish them and give them a future, and that they will be anchored permanently in this land. And of course, we know that in the, in the, sh the short term, it's probably referring to the, the, the holy land, but for us, the application would be to our eternal home. Right, the new heavens and new earth, that we will have that land forever. We'll be established forever. But the key here is to wait for the Lord, to wait patiently, to wait on him. Look at, look at verse 34. It says the same, same reality. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land, and you will look on, and you will look on when the wicked are cut off. So notice again the pairing of cut off with inheriting the land. And the idea of waiting on God reminds us that there's no quick fixes in this life. That we all wish that we could just do one or two things and it would set all of our problems right. But we have to trust God and wait for him to act. 
He knows what is best for us. He knows the time that is best for us. And he will act when that time comes and bring about our vindication. So wait on God. It's hard, way harder to do than, than just to say it, right? That is a difficult thing to do. Next, we see that we should delight in God. Delight in God. Just as seeing the big picture and waiting on God are very practical, this command is as well. Delight in the Lord. Look at verse 3. These are, these are very famous verses. Uh, verses 3 and 4. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. So instead of spending energy and time focusing on the prosperity of others or what the wicked get away with, put your focus on God. God is worth trusting in. So trust in the Lord. And he says you should befriend faithfulness. I love that language because it's so it's so colorful, right? It doesn't just say be faithful or know God's faithfulness. It says to befriend faithfulness, make it your intimate companion. What this could mean could be two different things. And I think it means both to some degree, which is in one, one regard, it's to work to grow in faithfulness. To befriend faithfulness is to become a more faithful person yourself. Or it could mean, I think it means this as well, is be sustained by God's faithfulness to you. Be intimately familiar with his faithfulness to you and let that sustain you. He goes on, right? and says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. This is incredible. And if, if you're like me and you've memorized part of this psalm, it probably has been at least this one verse. This is the most famous verse in this, in this chapter. Now, we have to ask when we read a verse like that, is it right to follow God just to get what you want? Well, it's a difficult question to answer, right? But this is what this means is should you just follow God so you can get what you want? I think in a real sense, um, we could say no. In another sense, we could say yes. And really the best answer to this question is the book Desiring God by John Piper. So if you have like 25 hours to read that book, you should do that. But to put it simply, the natural result of delighting in God will be that you will have your heart's desires met. So there's a sense in which because God is the, is the creator, he's the source of everything good, you can't come to him expecting anything less than to have your heart's desires met. Because if you know him and have a relationship with him, then he brings with him all of the blessings that he's in charge of, which is every blessing. So of course he's going to be able to give you what you want. But do you come simply for those secondary things? Well, no, you have to come first and foremost for God himself to know him as the treasure, and then he'll give you everything else as well. So when it says he will give you the desires of your heart, that can be understood in two different ways. One is that God is giving to you exactly what you want. That's one way. Or the second way is that he reshapes your desires. So when it says he gives you the desires of your heart, that he's actually giving you the, the, the feeling of desire itself or that, that, does, that, that willing for something itself. So I think both are true to some degree, right? When you know God, like I said, if you know God, if you have a relationship with him, ultimately God's going to give you everything you want. But what you want when you first come to God is probably in many ways the wrong thing. You're probably selfish. You're probably wanting others to be torn down so you can look good or whatever it might be. So God would not be just and righteous to give you those wicked desires. Instead, he reshapes your heart day by day 
through the power of the Spirit so that your desires are conformed to His will. And it's amazing because as you grow as a Christian, it becomes easier and easier in a sense to know God's will because you simply do what you want to do, right? Not in a sinful sense because you've already learned to turn away from sin progressively. Of course, you receive wisdom from others and you receive input from others. But at the end of all of that, the Christian is somebody who is the most free person in the world because they can do what they most want to do. What gives you most joy, if you're being transformed by, by Christ, is to love and to serve him. So you can follow your heart only when it's been truly transformed by God's word and by God's spirit. And what's the, what's the result of delighting and entrusting God? Well, verse five shows us. It says, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. So don't waver in your trust in God. Stay committed to the way in which he calls you. This word commit in verse five is actually the word roll, like R-O-L-L. It, it's like the idea seems to be something, something like unloading a burden, like letting a burden roll off your back. And so, so commit to him, commit your way to him is to give him the burden that you're carrying. And when you delight and you trust in God and you give him your, the, the burden that you're carrying, he will vindicate you. This is what he promises, that he will vindicate you, that your righteousness will shine forth like the light. Verses 23 and 24 say the similar thing. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in, their, in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. Even when you fall, God upholds you. And fall here probably refers not to a sin, but to disaster or pain or hardship that comes upon you. When you're feeling like you're stumbling and falling, God still upholds you. He upholds you. So we see the importance of delighting in God and the results that come from it. Amazing verses. And then we see we should trust in God's judgment. Trust in God's judgment. We've seen this a number of times in the Psalms that the judgment of God is a good thing in a few different ways. Look at verses 12 and 13. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked for he sees that his day is coming. So the wicked are trying to destroy and tear down the righteous. And often our frustration at the prosperity of the wicked is that their prosperity can be at, at our behalf. If you're seeking to follow God, often the wicked will take advantage or tear you down. But when God sees this and the plotting and the, the effort by the wicked to destroy the righteous, his response is to laugh. It's to laugh, right? We've seen this a few different times or this is the second time I should say that we've seen this. The first was in Psalm chapter two. But why is, why is God laughing, both in Psalm 37 and in Psalm two? Well, it's because God has a certain perspective. He sees their end. He sees that the end is coming for the wicked. And how sad it would be to be that person who has power and wealth and influence in this world only to realize that it'll avail you nothing when you face God. And the judgment, all of that will be empty. Verses 14 and 15 speak to this as well. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. 
So the plans of the wicked will just come back upon them. What they intended to do to you will only happen to them. And here, this is their sword shall enter their own heart. I've never fought with a sword, so I can't really say with authority, but it seems like it's a hard thing to do. I could be easy to chop off a finger with a sword probably, but piercing your own heart, it it shows just how crazy their efforts were. They end up killing themselves and piercing themselves through when they were trying to hurt other people. So judgment often comes simply as someone getting what they deserve. The natural effects of their sin, it's kind of a, a picture of the ultimate judgment that will come on the last day where we'll receive God's wrath because of our actions. And by contrast, the righteous are delivered. Verse 32 says, The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. So God's judgment comforts us because it condemns the wicked. It undoes the evil deeds that they've been planning. And it also vindicates the righteous. It works on our behalf to vindicate and show who we truly are. And, and, and the last response we should have to all of this that I think is so practical, so helpful, is to pursue contentment. So if we, see all the, if we see the big picture, if we see judgment is coming, if we understand and we're waiting on God, how should that affect our lives right now? Well, we should be pursuing contentment. Verse 16 says, Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. Better is the little that you have if you're righteous than the abundance of the wicked. You know, one of the most overlooked sins in the Bible is coveting. It's coveting. And and we think, I think, deep down inside that to want what someone else has, to desire to be in their place or to have their status is not sinful. But the answer to this temptation to covet is to be content, to be thrilled with what God has given to you, to see it as enough. That is an answer to this temptation to covet. Look at Proverbs 15, 16. It says the same thing. It says, better is little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. If you love God and if you're pursuing righteousness, then the little bit that you have is better than what the wicked has. You can have confidence in that because the wicked is holding on to all of these things and, and hoarding all of these treasures, but there's going to come a point where his arms will be broken and he won't be able to hold and to use all of those things. That's, that's sort of my metaphor with what the verse is saying here. It's not literally what it's saying. The arms of the wicked refers to their power, right? But look at the difference. The, the arms of the wicked are broken, but God's arms are upholding the righteous, so the wicked's not going to have power to enjoy what they've been given or what, they, what they've taken for themselves, but the one that God holds will always have enough. They'll always have what they need. The little that you have is better because you can actually enjoy it. As we've seen already, you know your security won't fade, your wealth won't diminish, it'll just increase when you approach death. And then he appeals to his own experience. I love this. This is probably my favorite verse Verse four is the most memorable verse or the most famous verse. I love verses 25 and 26 so much. I quote this all the time to people who are worried about their finances. Verse 25 says, I've seen, or sorry, I've been young and now I'm old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. 
I love this. He was young and now he's old. So he's, he's run the gamut of human experiences. He's been every age there is to be. He's seen a lot of things, right? Been around the block. And he says, one thing I've never seen is a righteous man forsaken by God. I've never seen a righteous person not have what they need when the moment comes. He's never seen a righteous person destitute. He's never seen their children as beggars on the street. It doesn't happen. It does not happen. God always gives his people enough. So if we have the right mindset, if we can trust God, if we are working hard, God will always give to us what we need. Yes, in the age to come, we'll have everything we could possibly want. But in this current time, God will always give to us what we desperately need. And we can take comfort in that. We don't have to be frustrated or anxious about what someone else has because we know that what we have is enough. So practice and pursue contentment. You know, all this passage, it may have, as you read through it, or even just heard me quote some of these verses, it may have reminded you of something. It may have just rung some bells in your head. And really, I think what this passage reminds me of so much, and I think Jesus had to have based his teaching off of this, is it reminds me of the Sermon on the Mount. It reminds me of the Beatitudes that Jesus lays out. I mean, obviously, that just the phrase, inherit the land, probably reminds you, if you know the Bible well, it probably reminds you of how the meek, according to Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, the meek will inherit the earth, right? That's the obvious connection there. So there's a connection there. There's also a lot of talk in the Sermon on the Mount about um, how if you're persecuted and you're attacked, that God will vindicate you. He will make your light shine and how we shouldn't hide our light because of that. This is obviously a theme in Psalm 37 as well. There's even the, you know, Matthew 5, 6, right? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Similar language to Psalm 37 about how we will be satisfied by God. And so Jesus teaches the same message that David was teaching here. He teaches it to its fullness. Um, But Psalm 37, what a great passage to meditate on and to be encouraged by when you are frustrated or discouraged by the state of this world. So I hope you'll, you'll run to this passage, you'll receive encouragement, you'll put some of this to memory, and you'll trust in the God and delight in the God who is spoken of here.